Welcome. I'm Knox County District Attorney General Sharm Allen. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, where I will discuss important issues impacting public safety with expert frontline prosecutors who are seeking justice each and every day. The District Attorney General's office can sometimes seem shrouded in secrecy. This is most often due to ethical rules that prohibit us from discussing pending cases. Our goal is to pull back that perceived curtain and tell you exactly who we are and what we do in the pursuit of justice, both in the courtroom and the community. Generally speaking, of course. For this episode of Generally Speaking, we will be talking with my Driving Under the Influence, or DUI unit. Through a joint effort with law enforcement, The DUI unit seeks to reduce the number of DUI-related fatalities and injuries in Knox County. The DUI unit resolved more than 1,100 cases in 2022, where the vast majority of the concluded cases were pled as charged. The classic DUI case has changed drastically over the past couple of decades. Here with us today are veteran prosecutors Andrea Klein and Greg Eschbaugh who will walk us through how the DA's office prosecutes DUI cases. General Andrea Klein has been with the office since 2000 and has served in a variety of courts and units. In 2014, she was instrumental in establishing the state's first prosecution unit for elder abuse cases, which just happened to be here in Knox County. She was also a huge part of the three-year rewrite across the state of Tennessee to improve our elder abuse laws. She is currently serving as the DUI unit felony sessions prosecutor. General Greg Eshbaugh has served the state of Tennessee as an assistant district attorney for nearly 17 years. For the majority of his career, he has prosecuted DUI cases. As the DUI team leader, he is the go-to person for all cases involving DUI offenses, both inside and outside of our office. In 2018, Greg was named the DUI Prosecutor of the Year for the Eastern Division by the Tennessee Highway Safety Office. Andrea, Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let's move forward to our direct examination. I'm thinking that most people here in our community think that DUI cases are fairly straightforward but I don't really think they understand our DUI laws and what it's like to actually prosecute these cases. So let's just start with the types of offenses that are assigned to your unit. Obviously, your unit prosecutes DUI cases, but can you break down for our listeners what types of offenses are assigned to your unit and the different ways that the cases move through the criminal justice system? The most important kinds of cases that we handle are going to be the vehicular homicide cases. So that's essentially a DUI case where the impaired driver is a proximate result of their impairment. They have killed another individual, whether that's a pedestrian or someone in another vehicle, or maybe it's even one of their passengers. We've had a a number of cases where that's been the situation. A lot of people think of impaired drivers and and they think of funny videos or or people acting stupid or driving really badly, but they, they don't necessarily see the horrible consequences that can come from that. And so those are among our most complicated cases, they may involve crash reconstruction. They may involve a retrograde extrapolation where we're trying to figure out someone was driving at time X, blood was collected at time Y. What was their BAC at the time that they actually were driving? So working backwards with an expert. 
we've had cases involving 3D mapping where they've mapped a quarter of a mile just because that's how big the crash scene was. It literally stretched for a quarter of a mile on Sutherland Avenue. Those are our most serious and, and complicated cases. It's not often that you have a, a video that just perfectly captures everything that happened in a fatal crash. We're kind of piecing it together from different witnesses or, or maybe even no witnesses. We may just be working backwards from roadway evidence or, or something like that. Assault cases where we're dealing with folks who've been seriously injured by impaired drivers, those are just heartbreaking cases. We have people who are paralyzed, you know, who are never going to be whole again. Both the homicides and the, the vehicular assaults are really, really trying. Just to recap for the listeners, the DUIs, the vehicular assaults, and vehicular homicide. Yes, ma'am. Andrea, can you give us an idea of how these cases move through the system? Well, it depends on what kind of case is charged. Typically, if it's a DUI, standalone DUI, it's going to start with a warrant that an officer will sign, send it to Sessions Court. And Sessions Court will either work out, if it's a misdemeanor, work out a plea agreement at the Sessions Court level, or we will have a probable cause hearing, and it'll either get bound over the grand jury or get dismissed. If it goes to the grand jury, when it goes there, it's presented to the grand jury, and if they find that there is enough to go forward, it'll go on to criminal court. If it's a vehicular homicide, sometimes vehicular assault, those could possibly go straight to the grand jury and skip the Sessions Court level. The vast majority start out warranted in Sessions Court. Okay, let's talk about something that you said in your answer. You used the dreaded word plea agreement. I think that there's a perception in our community that a plea agreement is a negative or a bad thing as far as prosecution is concerned. When you talk about pleas or plea agreements in DUI cases, can you explain to our listeners how many of those cases actually plead guilty as charged and what that means? It's called a plea agreement because the other side has to agree to it. We can't force someone to plead guilty. If they don't want to plead guilty, then we go to trial. So everyone's in agreement, so it is a plea agreement. I would say between, I don't know the exact statistics, but I'd say the vast majority of the cases that come through the system, particularly the misdemeanors, plead guilty in Sessions Court. Well over 60%, sometimes as high as, depending on the month, 70-80% of the cases that come through will be pleading guilty to a DUI. And even if they don't plead to a DUI, they may plead to a lesser offense which typically would be something like a reckless endangerment or a reckless driving. We also, in Sessions Court, have lots of other misdemeanors that are floating around with the DUI cases, simple possession, paraphernalia, public intoxication, disorderly conduct, theft. A lot of times domestic violence goes along with DUI cases. So you have to take in all of those factors when you're trying to work out a plea agreement. And to those additional charges that you just spoke about, you can have a defendant plead guilty as charged to those cases as well. You can, yes. I'm assigned to DUI court. My focus is on all of the cases, but primarily the DUI, because DUI is, even though it's first offense, second offense, third offense, it's an A misdemeanor, it has serious punishments, particularly as you go up. You have to do 48 hours in jail and lose your license for a year if you plead guilty to a DUI first offense. Second offense has 45 days in jail, loss of license for two years, increased fines, and it goes up through third, fourth, of course, fourth offense and above is a felony. And we can't plead those in Sessions Court. 
Let's talk about something that you said there. When someone does plead guilty or is found guilty of a DUI first, second, third, even though they're misdemeanor cases, there's mandatory jail time with Correct. that. And that is rare in a misdemeanor case. Most of our misdemeanors in the state of Tennessee do not require mandatory jail time, something that often makes them more difficult, I would assume, to deal with because it is one of the very few misdemeanors that does require that mandatory jail time. That's right. And also it, it has a different status, I guess is maybe the word, in that you lose your license for a year. A lot of people have a job that they have to go to work or kids to pick up. And of course, there are ways to get restricted license. But also anyone who has a license or a car even, not even a license, can get a DUI. Whereas some of the other drug offenses, that sort of thing, there's a certain type of activity that would lead to that that's a criminal activity. If you're dealing drugs, you're going to get a drug dealing charge. People across all types of class, professions, get DUIs. Going to jail for 48 hours and losing your license on a DUI first is a big penalty, and it, it should be because we don't want people to go out and drive drunk and hurt people. That's what we're trying to avoid. Public safety issue. Right. This mandatory jail time is one way that prosecution of DUI cases is different than other types of cases. Greg, are there other ways in which DUI prosecutions differ from other cases? A lot of cases, there are concrete issues that can be factually determined, like you either possessed methamphetamine or, or you didn't. It's very clean cut. There may be things that we can, can be argued about, but at the end of the day, the, the facts are usually pretty straightforward. In a DUI case, we're talking about impairment, and it's not some people are walking around with a sign over their head that says, I'm impaired, arrest me for DUI, right? And especially when you're talking about drugs as opposed to alcohol, and we have a huge drug driving problem in East Tennessee. And I've been doing nothing but DUIs since April of 2009. And I can say there's been shifts in trends in, in DUIs, but Drug driving doesn't manifest necessarily like you think of a drunk person. That's what most people have seen. That's what most people have encountered is, is people who are impaired by alcohol. Drugged drivers don't necessarily look like that. They don't smell like that. They may not have the classic bloodshot glassy eyes. So it, it can be very difficult. Certainly when we're talking about a, a jury, 12 citizens who probably don't have that much interaction with people who are impaired by drugs, for them to look at the facts, listen to the testimony and say, oh, yeah, that person was impaired. They didn't need to drive. Even in cases where we have test results, we can't just look at a number and say X amount of oxycodone, this person was impaired. When we're dealing with alcohol, we have the per se limit, 0 0.08. Everyone has probably heard about that. You can be DUI at less than a 0 0.08 if impairment is the critical question. It's our job to show that, to show that this person was unsafe to drive because they were impaired. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's really hard. Sometimes we don't succeed, unfortunately. And there are some intent-based crimes where it may be hard to point out exactly what was going on in someone's mind. But I think that that is one of the more difficult elements we have to show. Also, it's more scientific because you have specific steps in a DUI prosecution if it's investigated the way we're trained and they're trained to do it. You have to have, ideally, you have field sobriety tests. You have a breath or a blood test. It's a niche area of the law that has scientific elements to it that you have to understand what a tox report means. As a prosecutor and as a defense attorney, 
when you look at all of these put together, if it goes perfectly, you still may not be able to show impairment. If you've got a body cam where the person looks, you're surprised that they look as good as they do if they've got a really high blood, for example, or you've got all kinds of different drugs in there. But then you'll see other cases where you have a really high blood and good grief, they're a 0.18. I'm surprised by how well they're doing on the field sobriety test. Or you have cases where people are driving poorly, they're performing poorly on field sobriety tests, give a blood sample and we don't find anything. What's going on there? And occasionally I'm, I'm able to reach out to the TBI. They, they do most of our blood testing and I'll say, hey, what's going on here? There's some classic signs that this person was impaired maybe by opiates or, or something like that. Is there something I'm missing here? And a lot of times they're able to go back and, and they're able to look at the reports they've generated and they're not able to, for whatever reason, whether it's a, some sort of protocol issue or limitation on their, their instruments, they're not able to confirm or report uh, a certain drug, but they can say, Greg, you know, if this is an important case and they're all important, but, you know, someone hurt, multiple offender case, we can send this out to an independent lab, different protocols, different techniques. There is something here. And that would be like with synthetic drugs. Synthetic drugs. Uh, designer drugs. Yeah, there's a lot of synthetic fentanyl type drugs that the TBI can see that it is in there, but they don't have a way of reporting it. We can send it off to a, an independent lab and they're able to confirm. We've had several vehicular homicide cases involving synthetic uh, opioids where we had the TBI kind of pointed us in the right direction. We were able to send it off to an independent lab and, and confirm that these people did in fact have these drugs in their system. Just because we don't find something in there doesn't mean they weren't impaired. By the same token, just because we find some drugs in there also doesn't mean that they were impaired. Okay, you have both used terms like 0.08 being the per se limit. Andrea, you've said really high, 0.18. We're throwing around these numbers on the scale like our listeners understand what you're talking about. So can one of you talk about blood alcohol content levels? When we say the 0.08 limiter or the per se DUI, that is removing impairment from the equation. So our, our legislature has defined DUIs. There's a couple of different ways. If you're driving a commercial vehicle and your BAC is over a 0.04, that is considered a per se violation. If you're driving just a regular vehicle, your blood alcohol content is 0.08 or higher. That is also a per se. We're not saying that you're impaired. You probably are. You probably shouldn't be driving, but some folks may not be impaired at a 0.08. But we're just saying the fact that your blood alcohol content was over that level is a offensive DUI. And we have the general catch-all driving under the influence because of impairment. So that can be alcohol, that can be drugs, that can be alcohol and drugs. If there's a, a chemical in your body that you've ingested that's caused an impairment. That's this catch-all. And underage DWI is 0.02. used to be back in the day that a 0.10 was the per se, and, and then it got reduced to, to 0.08. So that people have perspective on this, I guess. I, Andrea and I recently went to a wet lab, and a wet lab is where officers uh, who are learning about DUI will actually have subjects perform field sobriety tests after they've been dosed with alcohol. I'm about 185 pounds. I drank 10 shots in an hour. And before field sobriety tests, I was a 0.13. And I, I can tell you, I, I did, I feel like I did pretty well on field sobriety tests, but I, I would also say I had absolutely no business 
being behind the wheel at a, a 0.13. So when people say had two beers and somehow I'm a 0.16, they're just lying to you. That's not it, it's it's not. I was a 0.17, by the way, and I did not do well on the field sobriety test. And I did them before I started drinking and I could do them fine. We're not talking about impairment. 0.05, you really don't need to be driving. Definitely at a, at a 0.08, there's significant impairment and, and beyond. It only gets worse from there. The higher your blood alcohol content becomes, the less able you're able to safely operate a motor vehicle. And there are additional punishments. If your blood alcohol is a 0.20 or above, there's the mandatory minimum first offense goes up from 48 hours to seven days. Also, while we're talking about that, if you have a child in the car on any of them, it increases the punishment 30 days in addition to whatever the first, second or third punishment would be mandatory. You guys are beginning to get into nuances of prosecution of a DUI case. What type of special training do you need to be able to successfully prosecute these DUI cases? So, again, I've been doing nothing but DUIs between my time here in Knox County and my former life as a prosecutor in Sevier County. I've been prosecuting DUI since 2009. I have gone to tons and tons of trainings, and I do think that that is helpful, especially the DUI laws. Unfortunately, they, they change pretty regularly. I like to, to say that I've forgotten more DUI law than most defense attorneys know. I've gone to A-RIDE classes uh, for prosecutors, A-RIDE, that's advanced roadside impaired driving enforcement, but that's focusing on drug impaired drivers. I've been to DUI schools. I've taught at DUI schools. I've done the DRE preschool, which that's a drug recognition expert. That's kind of the highest level of officer expertise in field sobriety testing, which that's an extensive program. A lot of nuance. I mean, we do specialized DUI trainings every year at annual conference. You can do DUI prosecution without that, but you're not going to be successful. There's a lot of technical issues that can really make or break a case. And if you don't know them, or at least don't know to look for them, you're going to get ambushed nine times out of 10 by the defense. And there's also a lot of case law on DUI too. We read it one way and they read it another way and can also have conflicting opinions through the courts too. You have to be up on the case law as much as possible as well. You guys have also mentioned field sobriety tests several times. Why don't we actually go over what the field sobriety tests are, the standard field sobriety tests that we use here in Tennessee, and explain what those are to our listeners? The standardized field sobriety test is a battery of three field sobriety tests that the uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they conducted a series of validation studies. AKA NHTSA. NHTSA. They just settled on three primary tests that they felt like were the most reliable, the most indicative of impairment. Uh, so the first of those is the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. And, and what we're looking for there is as a person becomes impaired by depressants like alcohol, and there are other classes of drugs that affect this as well, there's an involuntary jerking in the eye. And the officers can actually, through the use of a stimulus, and, and can watch the eye have issues tracking the stimulus. And this is involuntary jerking is nystagmus. That is the most accurate of our tests, which is naturally why it's the only one of our tests the officers can't actually testify about unless they're admitted as an expert. 88% uh, accurate uh, on its own. The other test is the walk and turn. 
That's a, a, a test where the officer has a person assume a position uh, standing heel to toe. They direct the person to, to take nine heel to toe steps, keeping their arms at their side, and then perform a turn a certain direction, nine heel to toe steps back. They're looking for, there's uh, eight specific clues on that test. Two or more on that test would, would indicate likely impairment. So it's not really a pass-fail, but would it tend to indicate impairment? It's, I believe, 77% accurate on its own. And then there's the one-leg stand, which you have a person basically stand on one foot, count 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, and so on and so forth until 30 seconds have elapsed. What we're looking for here is putting the foot down, raising arms for balance, swaying, or, or hopping on one foot. Uh, again, two or more clues on that would tend to indicate impairment. And it is, I believe... 79% accurate, depending on what study you're looking at. That battery of three field sobriety tests, three standardized field sobriety tests, has, a, again, according to some studies, a 93% correct arrest decision when we're talking about alcohol, so BAC of 0.08 or higher. And there's not one to count backwards, your ABCs. It's law enforcement who is administering the tests that you guys are relying on. So we as prosecutors work closely with law enforcement. In your DUI prosecution, is there a difference in how you in the DUI unit work with law enforcement during the investigative stage? Well, the thing about the DUI is if you're getting blood or breath tests, there's a time limit. You've got to move quickly. You want to get those samples as close in time to the incident that caused law enforcement interaction to begin with. You're going to want for example, on a vehicular assault or a vehicular homicide, you're going to want breath or blood testing, preferably as soon as you can get it. And if the individual who's the suspect is not willing to voluntarily do that, then or not, or not capable, or not capable, then we're looking at a search warrant situation that has to be done immediately as quickly as possible. Whereas if you're investigating, say, elder abuse or drug cases, you have a little time to work through that and investigate kind of at a slower pace. You don't have that in a DUI case ever because the, the evidence of the crime is disappearing as the clock ticks. Time is of the essence. Correct. And to do those search warrants, do you guys as prosecutors become involved with that process with law enforcement? We do. All of us in the unit are on call once every four weeks on average to take phone calls from officers who need assistance on making sure those search warrants have the right date and time and that sort of thing and looking over them and to send them on to the magistrate. And on any vehicular homicide, they're all going to go to Greg. So he's on call all the time. 24-7. 24-7. For how many years? 365 <laughs> for a million years. Um, but it is something that we all do. And it's very different than it, did, it would be in another unit because we're getting phone calls that you know, I've had three search warrant calls in one night, 12.30, 2.30, and 4.00. Um, Ruins your day. Yeah. <laughs> In our opening statement, I mentioned that the classic DUI case has changed over the years. Can one of you explain to our listeners what a typical DUI case looked like 20 years ago versus a DUI case today? When I was doing DUIs before, we spent a lot of time arguing over the stop if they went across the line. How many times did they go across the fog line? We had lots of alcohol cases. We didn't have body cams. Typically, uh, we started to, we moved into that. We had quaaludes and maybe some crack, but we didn't have a lot of drugs. It's amazing to me and scary to me how many cases we prosecute now of people who are overdosing driving their cars. 
It's shocking and horrifying. And it was not like that 20 years ago. Vastly different. That's because the opioids, heroin, that just wasn't a thing 20 years ago. Not regularly, at least. And it's also a timing issue that the arrest is made. I think back when I was growing up, my dad made me be home by 11 o'clock because nothing Nothing good happens happens after 11. (laughs) My dad said Um, the same thing. (laughs) So if you're off the roads, you know, because there's nobody out after 11 but drunk people leaving the bars. And so there was some truth in that. We made a lot of DUI arrests late at night, people leaving the bars. But that's not the case now. It is around the clock. You know, we've had DUI arrests in in the school drop-off line. Moms dropping off their kids for school in the minivan. So I think that's another difference as well. And it is different, too, having body cams. It's a double-edged sword because we have a lot more information, hopefully, that we can see the whole thing, what's going on. But, you know, an officer on the scene is not Steven Spielberg filming for the best angle. He's trying to work a scene, trying to get as much evidence, trying to keep people out of traffic. So some of those body cams... You can't see their feet in the field sobriety test. Or sometimes you have an officer who you, you hardly ever see the person's face because it's a really tall person and their body cams on their chest. And I think the general public thinks that when they get those body cams, they should be able to see everything on it. it can be a double-edged sword because they're coming in expecting, number one, to have all this DNA and toxicology and all of this, which sometimes we will, sometimes we won't. And they expect to see on the body cam everything that they here has happened in the in the event and that just doesn't work that way not every time or even hear anything on the body can it can be the audio can be just horrible between the roadway noise and the vehicles and if you have an ambulance standing next to the ambulance just hearing that low diesel hum you can't hardly hear anything else the officers really have to work hard to be mindful of that some of them do a really good job uh, sometimes it's just not possible to really capture uh, what you would want to capture. And and anymore you have can just be a deluge of video evidence. It's impossible to some case. I've, I've had cases with more than 50 videos um, between officers responding. And then you have the officer's body camera. You have the officer's cruiser video. You might have an interior rearward facing camera on the squad car. And you have to go through each of those and try to figure out this evidence is important. This evidence is not it can be just overwhelming. What do you guys wish the community knew about DUIs and state laws? I wish people would realize that even though their lawyer tells them not to give a breath test or a blood test, that's not necessarily good advice. There are many cases that I've prosecuted where a person has refused, and we did not end up getting a search warrant on that particular case. And a blood test would have maybe helped the individual. The community needs to know that just because, you know, your buddy who's a lawyer, your cousin's cousin or whoever, um, who says don't ever give blood, I don't think that's good advice because there, there are times that I wish people had been able to show they really did have two beers. Hard to give them the benefit of the doubt when they right. put their license in jeopardy uh, right. and refused a blood sample. Because if you refuse and you're advised of the implied consent law, which is what is on the books, if you, after being advised of those rights, you will have your potentially your license taken away for a year, even if you're not convicted of the DUI. Usually with a DUI, sometimes you will have an implied consent violation. So explain exactly what an implied consent violation is and what you are agreeing to when you get a license in this state. Driving is a privilege. 
And to be able to enjoy that privilege, you have given consent to have your blood tested if asked. And the law, and Greg probably can explain it a little better than I, but by getting your driver's license, you're consenting to give blood under certain circumstances. And you can either consent to have that blood draw or you can deny consent. And if you deny consent, then we could go get a search warrant and you could be charged with implied consent violation for failing to agree to give your blood. If we get a search warrant, we're going to get it anyway. But if you go ahead and give your sample, then you're not going to be charged with the implied consent violation. And if you give your blood and you're a 0.02 because you had a glass of wine while you had a big steak dinner, it's going to be much better for you when the DUI prosecution comes around and looks at that like, well, they did have a glass of wine. What are the violations for that implied consent law if you refuse? If you refuse, your license can be revoked for at least one year, and that's going to be the vast majority of people. Depending on your prior driving history and what kinds of convictions you have, it it could be up to a five-year revocation period. You could also be ordered to keep and install an ignition interlock device on your vehicle. And it can also affect if you ever get charged with DUI again, even if you don't get convicted, you would, under the current law, if you refuse to provide a sample in a prior incident, that would cause you to have to have an interlock on as soon as you're arrested on the new DUI. Ignition interlock, just to be clear, it's basically a breathalyzer that's installed on your your vehicle. And before you can start your vehicle, you have to provide a breath sample that doesn't uh, uh, have alcohol over a certain threshold. And you may be required periodically as you're driving to actually pull over within a certain uh, period of time and provide a, a, a new sample. The goal here is to try to keep people who, who may have a propensity to drink and drive from endangering not only themselves, but of course, everyone else on the road. So if they've been drinking, their car will not let them drive. And that's an ignition interlock, which is a tool that is used in, in DUI cases. We said earlier that most DUI convictions, you're going to be able to get a, a restricted driver's license. A lot of those are going to require for you to have the restricted license, you're going to have to have the ignition interlock device installed on your vehicle. I think generally they want that on your vehicle for the length of your revocation period. So if that's a DUI first, that's going to be one year. But a DUI second, that's two years. A third, that's six years. Fourth or greater, that's eight years. That that could be on your vehicle. What's another? Explain some of the other things that are unique to DUI cases. Scram. Scram, for Scram. instance, to our listeners. Scram or remote breath. Basically, it's an anklet, uh, for lack of a better word, that is installed on someone's ankle, and it periodically takes measurements to your, your body as it metabolizes alcohol. Some of that alcohol is actually excreted through your sweat. Scram device will measure alcohol content in your sweat. It is also looking for changes in temperature and changes in color. So it, what it's trying to do is make sure that you don't try to interfere with the device by, say, putting a sock between your leg and and the device itself. So it's looking for subtle changes. And when it detects alcohol, it's looking for certain parameters to confirm a positive reading. So like you you could theoretically dump rubbing alcohol on your ankle, and that's going to show a massive alcohol spike. But it's not going to be that gradual increase and decrease that would be consistent with someone who's actually actively consumed alcohol and is excreting that through their body. I've found some people do very, very well with it. Some people do less well with it, but it tends to be an external thing that is reminding someone, I can't drink. 
I don't need to drink. I can't drink. If I drink, I'm going to get into trouble. And so it, it can be very helpful in, in helping wean people off of the need to consume alcohol. And also, of course, they don't work for, for drugs. Interlock, neither, neither one, Scram or Interlock. And there's a report generated from this anklet, the Scram, that comes back to the courts. That's how we know exactly. as prosecutors so, so whether or not you've been drinking. They're, they're, they're being monitored by uh, pretrial, and they'll send us reports when there's an issue. And if you're on bond, we'll likely file a motion to revoke your bond. And if you're on probation, we'll likely ask for a violation of probation warrant issue. Is there a distinction working with DUI victims from those victims in other units or other cases? How's it different working with victims in your particular cases? A lot of my cases, I don't have victims. I do have a lot of victims, but a lot of times it's property damage, fences, mailboxes, other cars. That's way preferable than bodily injury. And of course, if we have serious bodily injury, it's vehicular assault. I don't handle as many cases that are the homicide as, as Greg does. So the victims are, in my, for the most part, are minor restitution amounts, deductibles for car accidents. I don't have the wear and tear emotionally that Greg does on a regular basis. But anytime you're dealing with victims who've, who've had serious bodily injury or loss of family members, it's, it's horrible. It's my least favorite part of the job. Uh, a lot of people... You know, whether someone goes out and takes a gun and shoots someone and kills them or got drunk, got behind the wheel and, and ran, ran someone over, the result is the same, right? You still have someone is now deceased who was alive, had family members, had a full productive life. But there's obviously a, a difference in intent there, right? In our cases, I think it's hard because the result is ultimately the same. But our people in the DUI unit, our, our defendants... I haven't come across a single one of them who, when they got out of bed that morning, they said to themselves, I'm going to go out and I'm going to kill somebody. I'm going to drink and I'm going to drive recklessly and I'm going to hit and kill somebody. They don't mean to do it. It's still horrible. It's still senseless. Some of our victims struggle with that distinction, you know, intentionally versus recklessly. It is a difference, but Vehicular homicide is, is graded differently accordingly than, say, first-degree murder. We'll say the le legislature's done a good job uh, this year. They passed a truth and sentencing law. And so whereas before vehicular homicide cases were generally a B felony with 8 to 12 years, but with a parole release eligibility at, at the, after serving 30% of the sentence, that, that's now 100%. When we say 8 years, uh, you're serving 8 years. We say 10 years, that's 10 years. So that's a positive change, and it is a lot more, I hate to say justice, but it, it's the victims are now getting much more out of these kinds of cases than, than what we were able to get uh, in previous years. Um, so that's been a positive development because, I, again, it's horribly tragic. No matter how a family loses a loved one, that loved one is gone. And in my experience, the family doesn't really much care how it happened it's the same effect. Their loved one is gone and will never come back. Truly, these uh, vehicular homicide cases are very difficult to work. We are dealing with victims. We are dealing with heavy emotional cases. We, as prosecutors, deal with a lot. So why don't you guys tell me uh, what it is that made you choose this profession and what it is that makes you come to work every day and why you are a prosecutor at heart? Well, I've done a little bit of defense work. 
And I've done a lot of prosecuting and I way prefer the prosecuting, get to wear the white hat. Our job as prosecutors is to enforce the laws, but also to be fair. I'm working to protect you, defense attorney, my victim, everybody who's on the street, and your defendant. It's my job to protect all of you. It's your job to protect your one person, but I'm looking at everybody. And I think that that's a heavy role, but it's a noble profession. I went to law school and I was a transactional track attorney. So I didn't have any real exposure to criminal law at all. I mean, apart from the basic courses that are offered in the first year of law school, I I didn't have any classes that were related to to prosecution or defense for that matter. There's some classes that had crossover like constitutional law, but I was going to go and write contracts for the rest of my career. I graduated from law school and I was in private practice for a little bit less than a year, and I was really unhappy uh, with what I was doing. And I just happened to, one of my classmates uh, told me that there was a job open in uh, Sevier County and that it was criminal law. She knew that I wasn't happy with what I was doing and that I I should apply. So I applied and thankfully got the job and uh, (laughs) kind of been doing that ever since now. And I was in private practice. I, I never did any sort of criminal defense work. When I was in law school, I didn't even think about the fact that, you know, I, I didn't want to do criminal defense work. But I didn't think about the fact that for every criminal defendant, there's a prosecutor. So it really meshed pretty well with my ethos. I'm a very black, white kind of person, which can be problematic at times. But I feel like you know, this really is, I get to come in and I get to do the right thing every day as part of my job. And I think that's one of the few professions where that is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to come in and you're supposed to do the right thing. You're supposed to see that justice is done. Respect the role of the defense attorney, but that's quite frankly not their job. They're to keep the state honest. They're there to protect their clients' interests. And that's a necessary part of our adversarial system. But like Andrea, I like to wear the white hat. Well, you both do a fantastic job of wearing that white hat. Thank you both very much for being here with us today and going into depth about DUI prosecution with our listeners. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing statement. Driving under the influence is a serious offense, and the Knox County District Attorney General's Office works to hold impaired drivers accountable for their crimes. Please follow the Tennessee Highway Safety Office on social media and share their important messages to prevent impaired driving. Driving under the influence is a crime that is 100% preventable. Don't ever think the unthinkable won't happen to you or one of your loved ones. Also, as mentioned in our conversation, the majority of cases we see involve substance use and misuse. If you or a loved one needs help for addiction and or substance misuse disorders, contact the Tennessee Red Line. The Tennessee Red Line is the 24-7, 365 resource for substance abuse treatment referrals. Anyone can call or text 800-889-9789 for confidential referrals. For our next episode... We will be talking with my mental health prosecutor to examine what our office is doing at the cross-section of mental health and public safety. Be sure to tune in. 